The Federal Innovator Podcast is brought to you by Accenture and produced by Government Executive Media Group Studio 2G. Change is all around us and happening at light speed. At Accenture, we see change as a constant source of energy and inspiration, and we're helping deliver the change that matters right now with bold thinking, tried and tested innovation, the best in technology, and a tireless focus on people. Learn more about how Accenture can help your federal agency put change to work and meet your mission. Visit AccentureFederal.com. Given the scale and complexity of many government agencies, a unifying purpose and silo-spanning collaboration is the foundation required to fulfill their missions. But getting stakeholders and subject matter experts in the same room to rally around opportunities and to create that desirable future is no easy feat. That's right, Tim. This is especially true for the State Department's Bureau of Overseas Buildings Operations, which is charged with connecting stakeholder and experts via secure, resilient facilities that support the State Department's objectives abroad. And during the pandemic, when experts were confined to their homes and travel was restricted, that challenge only became more urgent and complex. The State Department's OBO Tech Accelerator Program was tasked with bridging that gap, and they did just that, making their world just a little bit smaller by piloting mixed reality headsets that allowed their experts to provide remote assistance to on-site workers via live point-of-view video calls. But what did it take to get this innovative technology up and running, and what is its future at the State Department? That's what we're here to discuss today on The Federal Innovator, a podcast for and about the innovators taking on the biggest challenges in the federal government and making change that is more human, simple, and enduring. I'm your co-host, Stephanie Wander, Deputy Director and Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council Geotech Center. And I'm Tim Irvin, Managing Director and Lead at Accenture Federal Studio. Joining us to discuss these issues and more are Danello Stapula, Chief Information Officer Overseas Building Operations for the State Department, and Erica Haume. Technology Accelerator Program Manager at the State Department. Thank you both for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having us. First question I'll go to you, Dan. How do you fit within the Department of State? Tell us a little bit more about your mission and purpose. I'm the Chief Information Officer for the Overseas Buildings Operations Bureau. We fit within the Department of State under the Undersecretary for Management. And our mission is we are the real property manager for the 278 posts their residences, their buildings overseas. So our mission is overseas focused. It's with all the ambassadors, the missions, the posts in the countries that we serve. We both do all the real estate and leasing transactions and, and manage all of that, as well as providing the government oversight to design, engineering, and construction projects worldwide. So as you can imagine, during the pandemic, this affected our mission in a lot of different ways, but uh, monitoring projects, having to stop projects in different countries around the world, the real estate portfolio being intimately working with the facility managers and their real estate officers, real property officers at embassies worldwide. The post overseas has all the same challenges that we have here. Domestically, we have classified and unclassified work in spaces where it's appropriate to have a regular air conditioner and places where you need secure building equipment, which must be dealt with with secure systems. That requires that sometimes we have maintenance work that can only be done by Americans. In a lot of cases, we send those folks traveling on a very regular basis. So I think as Erica had mentioned when we were speaking earlier, Folks travel a lot from OBA because there are certain parts of the facility management function and the construction management function that require a personal presence. 
So Dan and Erica, it's fascinating to me that you all are thinking about, I'm going to call them design considerations, like how art is experienced or what's the cultural implication of the buildings that you're working on, or as you mentioned, security issues. I'm curious what other unique design considerations you have in terms of how you think about buildings that go beyond what we might typically think of as real estate management. Yeah, I mean, art is a good one. We have cultural heritage and art, which are always a unique, interesting area to talk about many countries, we have facilities that are historic in nature that have been from Paris, where Ben Franklin worked in the original furniture to other very interesting buildings in Morocco and other places. So there are design considerations about everything from how we construct around those buildings to how we do facility management in those spaces, how we work with the artists to ensure that the environment that we put artwork that is lent very generously to the department in some of our spaces overseas is cared for properly. What is the TAP program and how does it work? The Technology Accelerator Program is a program that's in place to work with the business to identify the business needs. Newer technology that's coming out either to market is already out that the business wants to use in order to make their lives a little bit easier for building management, construction management, overall technology capabilities, anything that may not be available necessarily in the federal space as is, but something that we can get to. The standard norm people think about is I'm going to go to work, I have a PC I work with, I have monitors and mouse and a phone. Well, what's next? What can we bring to help you guys do your job more efficiently? Does it require... IoT sensors that collect information and report back on the shift in maybe stories within a building. So an earthquake on the Ring of Fire, for example, within the world, if one of our embassies were to shift left and right or up and down because of the earthquake impacting one of the buildings, first thing people are going to worry about that are at that site is, is it safe to go back into the building? And so this is just one example we've recently been exploring. What's it going to take to bring sensors to support analysis so that we don't have to send people out to the field site or out to the post or embassy to do that actual analysis at the site to look at the story drift of the, of the building, how the ground shook to impact the actual building, and then to derive decisions of investments in the either tear down and rebuild of that building over the course of time if it's consistently impacted. But that's just one example that helps people do their job very differently and more efficiently. We're also looking to save a lot more money by bringing technology to the department and then to our bureau through these analysis. I think you had asked about the program structure, how we kind of move about to support the business. We're in the process of identifying our intake. So we're receiving a lot of requests from different angles, one from the business, two from the department, three from industry saying, here's the coolest new thing. And then also four from our resources that have heard about great new opportunities within private industry and are bringing them to say, I heard about this use case from so-and-so within the business. This would meet their needs or could meet their needs. I'd love to be able to explore it. A lot of our facilities overlap with other agencies. So it's, you don't want to just bring the shiny new toy into a facility that has 
top secret or highly classified information in it because you don't necessarily know how it's going to work ahead of time. So we work with other bureaus to do that assessment, take and tear apart the actual technology, and then work with the actual post to help bring the technology. And at post, they have different intelligence working groups so they can run some of this technology through the other agencies and say, okay, well, this would benefit our mission by bringing this in. They help us justify it. And then if we can test it there, then we're able to test. But sometimes those are the challenges we hit. But we pilot, do lessons learned, identify any business challenges we might meet, whether it's through use of the technology, through where the information is extending the federal data, and then determine if we need to build out a different kind of service or identify a different kind of technology that would support the business need. And again, sometimes we do have to pivot, find a new technology and start from scratch, but that's all part of the R&D process. I think part of it really comes down to scaling after the fact. You have to leave it on the business to make that decision as to whether or not it's worth scaling the technology more broadly rather than just forcing it on someone to say, this is great, let's move on it. They really have to adopt it individually to scale it so that we can build out this initiative that supports the business very differently than just saying, we've got this cool new technology, let's go. That makes sense. And actually, one thing that hadn't occurred to me, but based on when you're talking about the business kind of making the decision on the scaling, do you ever package content for them to make it easier for maybe the business to socialize to other places? Because I think one of the big challenges to build momentum and interest is about the ability to have portable content that's easily socialized that gets with a good story to say, hey, this happened in Paris or London or Istanbul. Maybe other people would see it and then covet maybe an opportunity to pilot as well. Is that all on the business or do you get into that kind of? You're absolutely correct. I would say about 20 to 25% of the role is marketing. It's, It's marketing the capabilities, highlighting the interest, identifying the business use case, the success, the challenges we've hit, the hurdles. But it comes down to creating one-pagers, dashboards, Mm -hmm. displays that do draw attention from the business and from others. Hosting, we hosted two deep dives on some of our technology back in December and focused the technology around more of a winter-themed, holiday-themed capability. So with HoloLens, we did, one of our team members, baked brownies and displayed the use case to to everyone in the bureau and then also across the department. So we highlighted the capabilities in a silly way, but it certainly built morale and people took time out of their lunch hour to actually join us. Karen and Erica, I'm curious, what challenges do you face when engaging in tech innovation? Are there budgetary considerations? Is it all about risk mitigation? Is it just the approvals? Are there other things we might not think of that are challenges that you have to deal with? Yeah, all of the above. We're lucky that we've got a lot of support to go out and pursue innovative approaches and solutions. If we need to buy a drone, we can buy a drone to test it out. But to go further than that, once you've fleshed out the ideas, all the same budgetary concerns come into the picture. So it all depends on what you can bring to the table and what the payback is, both for the mission and dollar-wise. So we've gone after some fairly 
straightforward use cases where the payback for being able to do a, to keep million dollar or billion dollar projects going when they can't proceed further without certain inspections from a payback point of view, that's a no brainer, but not everything is that clean cut. And then if you have obstacles, those start adding up as far as being able to mitigate them. But yeah, we have the same, in our case, as, as Erica mentioned, super supportive leadership. They want us to investigate these things. So the willingness to spend on some basic R&D, applied R&D for us is there. There's a huge amount of support. Not everybody has that, but we do have that fortune. But then taking it to the next level, actually applying it on more than one project goes through the same challenges. And we follow the same kind of prioritization of funds and budgeting requirements that the rest of the organization does. Wanted to take a step back out a little bit, just relative to the HoloLens program. I'm curious, are there, because it felt like that was really about closing gaps, closing a real or perceived distance between, say, headquarters and some of the sprawling State Department facilities. Are there other things that, as you looked at a technology that enabled you to do that, kind of close maybe a gap in time or a gap in distance? Are there other high or low-tech ways that you've thought about closing that gap? Yeah, uh, Erica, you could probably elaborate on this. I'll just bring up the basic iPhones that people have, government-issued. We had many folks doing the low, it's not low-tech, but the FaceTime approach to using your iPhone to provide visibility into like the status of a project or the status of a particular piece of equipment. You can use your iPhone and do the equivalent of FaceTime. I don't really know if it was FaceTime per se, And that's similar, but not as elaborate as what you can do with the HoloLens. Same thing with iPads. So yeah, there's more than one way to skin the cat. It's just you want to get to the point where, oh, I also want to be able to pull up the manual at the same time and visualize stuff at the same time. So the the requirements drive wanting a little bit more elaborate solution. But there certainly are low tech, you know, and people get on the phone with each other and walk their way through certain maintenance procedures. So without the visual. Erica, you might have more examples, but those are the ones that jump to mind. I find it funny when people ask, well, why invest in a $3,500 product when you have an iPhone and you can talk over FaceTime? The difference, and this is specific to HoloLens, the difference is the way our technicians work or our field engineers work, they require their hands or their extremities to do something. So walking through doors, turning over furniture, doing actual physical inspections to turn a wrench on some kind of mechanical resource and following guidance that they need either printed out or right next to them as they're doing the work. The runner up to that (laughs) from what we've been proposed, if things hadn't worked out for use of the Hollands, would be to stick an iPhone on your head and walk around (laughs) with it, (laughs) which we... In our experience, we did not think that that would work too well. It just is that that is too low oh, tech. That's brilliant. <laughs> it makes there a good are. party game, though. <laughs> yeah, I can see that maybe doing that in a long line at Disneyland, but less so fixing a mechanical issue in a foreign embassy. That's pretty great. And, and I think the, the, the great thing about that is just the understanding the nuance of the context. What do you need your hand and extremities for? I'm imagining people propping up a phone, holding a phone, propping up a manual, wiping grease off the lens, and then fumbling and dropping uh, stuff down. 
on the elevator shaft. It's like exactly. that context is so critical. Exactly, exactly. So I mean, the introduction of the technology is just initially for remote interactions, but layer on top of that additional applications that we're working to get approved within the department. And you have the capability to see virtual reality applications for how your mechanical room should look, the design of it, the HVAC system. If something's broken and it's not aligning properly, like a gear or something, you'll notice off the bat because the virtual reality display will overlay on top of the actual reality image. And so you'll see that the gear in VR is in one spot, but it's located somewhere else in another spot. So it's off the rails or something. Mm -hmm. And those are training techniques. Those are helpful applications that would be able to get us where we're going. And I think you guys had alluded to it earlier. One of the things that we've been so resourceful from working through getting the HoloLens adopted within the Department of State is that there has been a lot of support at the department level from an enterprise deployment because it doesn't just take one bureau. We have to work towards collaborating with different organizations to bring these tools and technologies in place. There's a cybersecurity team that does a full scope analysis of capabilities, how this technology works, how it's intended to work, how it should work. What happens if a user loses the device? There's a remote management team that can wipe the device, wipe the configurations and aligns it to the department cloud. So it really takes a village to bring this entire technology together. So we've been very, very lucky to one, have a business need and drive that business need alongside the actual stakeholders that have made this all possible to adopt within a larger enterprise schematic. That's awesome. And thank you also for the enduring image of somebody with a phone taped to their forehead, because that's <laughs> kind of what I'm <laughs> No, that's right. <laughs> that is right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We're super, super grateful for your time. Thank you so much. Wow, that was really remarkable. And I think from my perspective, wholly unexpected as far as the span of responsibilities across the Department of State. I did not expect to be talking about art culture and the potential movement of a building as a result of an earthquake and using sensors to evaluate it. How'd that strike you, Stephanie? What stood out to you? Yeah, likewise, I think I was just like you, really struck by the breadth of their work and the challenges that they face. It always amazes me when we start to talk about spaces that we're really talking about people and culture and how formative those things are as a backdrop to what people experience. And it seems like they really have a role as cultural ambassadors, as well as thinking about all of the security and sort of operational and tactical implications. And from a design challenge, that's just really extraordinary. Could not agree more. I think the one thing, knowing that they set the lab up around the beginning of the pandemic. So they've obviously got a charter, they got a mission, whether they had clear cut backlog set up of all the different ideas they want to try. Clearly that needed to be rethought and was fundamentally potentially shaken by the pandemic and the move to remote. And then the impact on their customers and on their constituents. I think one thing that really stood out was this notion of resilience as a very important and a mandatory part of what they're doing Stephanie, we've all needed to live it on a daily basis as well as in our work, but on the theme of resilience, what are your thoughts there? Was there surprises there? It really wasn't so much surprising as an OES moment that resiliency really is becoming increasingly important as a design criteria, I think, across all government solutions. 
I think as we see things like climate change increase, as we see these kinds of pandemics, as we know we're dealing with more and more stakeholders, how our systems are able to respond, how technology enables that or creates vulnerabilities, I think is gonna become a more and more important question for us thinking about how does government innovate around these issues. So I really think that resiliency is something we're gonna need to get really good at in our design work in terms of thinking about how our people and systems can respond with alacrity. I think you're right. And I think even just thinking about climate change, knowing that there's many different organizations that their missions are being affected, if not rewritten by things like climate change. I think the same thing occurs to me too, when we talk about culture, and then we talk about climate change, is just designing for equity broadly, mm-hmm. I think, is another thing. While we didn't discuss it specifically in this discussion with Dan and Erica, I do think that is a lot of agencies really are needing to fundamentally rethink focus and these things that felt like maybe they're on the sideline or they were a special provenance of a different group or subset, I think are increasingly becoming, it's part of the mission and it's part of the strategy and it's part of the practice that needs to be cultivated. It's not a side project. It is the project. Uh, So I think that's a healthy reminder. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we saw in some of their examples, just how equity isn't really a one size fits all solution that we have to think uniquely about the spaces and cultures that we're serving. And how do we really think about unique solutions that fit the needs of of particular groups and environments. And if we don't think about customizing, we potentially lose sight of really important opportunities to make traction in terms of equity. Yeah, and thinking about that customizing stuff, I thought the one enduring image I have from the discussion was as Erica was talking about the HoloLens and its use in the Department of State, where they're working in a one-handed or a no-handed environment and talking about, well, as they're making a case for this from a pilot perspective, it's like, well, do you really need a HoloLens or does it need to be a $3,500 solution? Or are we talking about tape and an iPhone and FaceTime? So I've got this image of somebody with a phone taped to their forehead trying to manipulate a panel in an elevator. But I think there is a definite pragmatism in Erica's discussion of how they take things off the backlog, how they work in kind of an MVP model, and then just test things out and don't try to go for scale, go for value and efficacy, and then let the business decide and be a part of it. But the business needs to react to that successful pilot and say, is this something that we can and should be building out at scale? Yeah, like you, I found it so striking how pragmatic they were about these decisions and how they think so carefully about how their customers and constituents are affected. What do you think it takes to create that kind of culture amongst a team to really be able to create an environment where you have that grassroots momentum in terms of innovation? It's a number of things. I think one thing that stood out from that conversation, it's just a healthy reminder that it's not about a have a brilliant idea and then everything else falls in line. It's about how do you have that idea? How do you demonstrate that there are emerging technologies that can support that idea? Or in some cases, not even emerging, just different technologies, different solutions and services. But it's about socializing that. It was telling that Eric had mentioned that 20 to 25% of their job is marketing. It's the marketing of these things to get people on board. It hasn't been blessed and then it just magically takes off, but they do hard work about it. That hard work might mean making brownies. As she talked about a holiday themed open house where they would demonstrate the technology. Somebody in the group made brownies, they get people in, they're talking about it. And it just creates an environment where people their posture has changed to embrace the possibility. And so you build constituents and you build a support network and you build connections with like-minded people. So you've got this mix of a great idea, but also the force of personality 
and kind of willing things into existence by just marketing it, socializing it. And I think that's just was really, really pragmatic. And I thought a really cool counterpoint to the shiny newness of the technology is just the people that collaborate and have a common purpose and find each other and support each other. Yeah, I don't know that we talked about this quite as much, but it strikes me that too, the technology can really be that wave that you ride. If the tech is really good and it's seamless and it's fun to use and you engage with it and it just makes sense to you and it clicks about what it means for your business, mm -hmm. it makes it a lot easier to say, yes, let's take this project from pilot and actually deploy it and how do we embed it? Like if it's a great solution and it solves problems, in a lot of ways that tech will sell itself. Yeah, yeah. And Actually, one thing too, and we've heard this in some of our other sessions and discussions with federal innovators, but just the connection of public and private and like reaching out to the private sector to help to speed things along. Stephanie, in many ways, I look to you and your work as somebody who's very used to activating that ecosystem. So I'm curious, are there lessons or, or things that you heard from Dan and Erica that stood out that feel like other folks in the federal space can and should be thinking about relative to commercial practices or commercial networks? Yeah, I think finding these inroads for tech companies to have conversations, basically for government to discover private sector solutions is really tremendously valuable. So I thought the TAP program, the Tech Accelerator program, really was a great example about creating opportunities for people to engage and using those opportunities, not only engage with tech, but then to ultimately find cost-effective solutions to see where they could drive the business value. I think ultimately the perennial challenge with building relationships with the private sector is the tech's available. I think they want to work. They want to solve important problems. It's just, how do you make it easier for them to engage, to work with you, to navigate the purchase processes, to understand your buying cycles. So anywhere that you can build bridges or create test cases where everyone can feel out how it would work and, and what it would be like to work together are enormously valuable. So I think it's this idea that piloting just becomes more and more important when mm -hmm. it comes to private sector partnerships. Yeah, I like that concept of a bridge builder because public to private, I think that very much is in aligned philosophically with that approach that Erica mentioned around kind of building bridges to other groups and other like-minded individuals and other people that help to fuel demonstrable progress. Absolutely. So one of my questions for you was, was just thinking about how do you think about federal innovators and helping them identify when it's really time to take something from the prototyping stage? I think Erica called it the tip of the spear and really time to say, let's scale it, let's take it to business value. How do you know when you've got enough value that it's time to take something out of the experimental phase? I think there are always going to be cycles of maturity. And I think the one thing that's been consistent with everybody we've been talking to around innovation in the federal space is there is a commitment to a test and learn mentality, a commitment to lean practices that allow you to increase your speed to confidence and your speed to value. And so if you're starting with eight people, or maybe you're starting with, as Dr. Vega called, empathetic interviews, so you're starting to reach out to groups of individuals in a qualitative form, and then you slowly move from insights to prototypes to pilots, I think there's a maturation across those as you increase scale. It's not zero to 60, or it's like all the, let's go from A to Z as quickly as possible, Z being massive scaled uh, rollout. It's, it's about A to C and then D to E. And it's like, you've got to maybe pace yourself a little bit and have demonstrable value. And you could do a lot of that with qualitative research, getting feedback, and then just rolling out. That doesn't have to take a long time. It's not about coding initially. It's about testing. 
And those prototypes, they might involve zero code whatsoever. You can learn a lot from getting a paper prototype or a scenario presented for five people, as you can in some cases for 30,000 people. That's super helpful, Tim. Thank you. Thank you for listening into this episode of The Federal Innovator. Please stay tuned for more episodes as we explore innovation across the federal landscape. Thank you for listening to The Federal Innovator, brought to you by Accenture. At Accenture, we're helping the federal government do the extraordinary things it takes to create a better future for everyone. See how we're delivering this new future faster. Visit AccentureFederal.com to learn more.